0: This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. There's good all around us. Let's hear about
1: it. Welcome to Do Good Charlotte on the Queen City Podcast Network. I'm Pamela Escobar. In each Do Good Charlotte podcast, you will find out who's helping, who could use a helping hand and just how you can spread around your own good. This February, Share Charlotte is highlighting our nonprofit partners who focus on caring for animals. These organizations support rescue, education, outreach, and advocacy of wild or domesticated animals in the Charlotte area. Today, we're sitting down with Carolina Waterfowl Rescue. This is a cool story. What started out as a grassroots effort to save local birds has evolved into a massive operation that spans 15 acres and rescues thousands of animals every year. It was all started by Jennifer Gordon, who joins us now. Jennifer, welcome to Do Good Charlotte. Thanks for having me. So we were just talking about you started this back in 2003, but the truth is you were starting even before that in your garage. How does How does that happen? What started it?
0: Well, I actually moved here from California and I had, um, you know, didn't really have, um, I was looking for a job, didn't have a job yet. was kind of looking for something to do. I stumbled upon some animals um, at, at, we had, we'd bought a house and it had a pond and I stumbled upon some ducks that needed um, assistance. And I thought, well, in California, it's a little more forward thinking back then you know 25 years ago we had no kill shelters already we had you know places for animals to go and i just assumed here that would be the same because i hadn't lived here very long and then i found out that there really wasn't anything and um so i had to start looking into raising the um you know i found some baby ducks and the mom was killed and i had to raise the baby ducks so it was a learning experience for me like I'll find someone to do this. And then I realized that, you know, that like the old saying, I, you know, somebody do something. And I realized that someone was me. And so um, then I started volunteering at another local organization that did bird rescue. And I became the duck lady. So it was like, well, we have this lady that volunteers here. She takes ducks on the side. And then, um, you know, I started um, just collecting more animals and I realized it was growing and the need was so great that I couldn't sort of keep going in my garage and that I needed to either start a charity to be able to um, get more donations and volunteers or I kind of had to quit because it was a little overwhelming um, how many people started contacting me for help.
1: Yeah, once people figure out that you're the duck lady, then you you become very popular. <laughs> so, so how, so how did you go about it? So you you figured out okay, I need to I need to make this a charity. So th- is that what you did? And then did you find space, or how did you? What were the steps?
0: That was kind of the hard part finding space. Um, I had uh, formed the charity, and um, I I had a couple of other. I actually at the around the same time found out about. Wildlife rehabilitation, and I joined Animal Rehabilitators of the Carolinas, which is a local organization of home based uh, wildlife rehabilitators. And I learned how to rehabilitate wildlife there. And at the same time, I was forming the Carolina Waterfowl Rescue. So I had, um, you know, s- sort of this whole world opened up to me. I had no idea about, and most people that d- didn't really know about back then. It was, it, And wildlife rehabilitation started out as like kind of the little ladies feeding the bread's bird and like mothering them to now it's actually, it's, it's a profession now and they have college classes for it. And so over the years since I started, it's evolved into a, to a, a professional career versus just people that, you know, stayed home and took care of animals. And so I had, um, started looking for a location and we, um, Found some donated space, and then as soon as we got in there, the landlord decided to um, charge us money, and then he was going to kick us out. And it just seemed a lot, a very overwhelming because it was—it's not that much money now, but back then that was that was a lot of money for us. And so I did my first news story, and I asked for donations to help cover the rent, and we had people sign up for monthly donations, and soon we had enough monthly donors to cover the rent and we were in business and so that's kind of how it started.
1: Well, and when I'm looking at this and it, um you had you started with 300 birds um in your first year and now you're at 7,000 animals. So, mm-hmm. when we say animals, we've grown from birds. Mm-hmm. What else what else is, are you helping?
0: Well, I'm kind of just a sucker for anything that needs help and so over the years we've evolved into you know, there there wasn't a rabbit rescue, so we took in some rabbits and I would go out with animal control and do like a seizure or a criminal case or a hoarding case. And they would have, you know, oh, there's this random goat. We don't have anywhere for it to go. And so it just kind of turned into us taking what needed help. And then um, then we eventually bought our our land now. We have 15 acres. We have a farm. And we started doing some farm animals and exotics. And over the years, um, recently, a lot of there's a lot more farm rescues that have popped up in sanctuaries, and so we've kind of cut back on that. Um, originally, my goal was to collect animals that fell through the cracks, and there's a lot of animals that fall through the cracks. Reptiles are one of them, and birds are one of them, and so I try to focus my energy on animals that don't have other places to go. So when a rabbit rescue is good and is able to take rabbits, we refer, and then when they're not there anymore. We'll probably take rabbits again, but it. We're trying to like uh, utilize all of the rescue partners that we have available to us in the Charlotte area and even outside of the Charlotte area, and then just kind of pick up the slack that gets left behind. And so there's, um, you know, we've we've had everything from alligators to, um, you know. Uh, Hummingbirds to the biggest birds in North America. You know, um, we have trumpeter swans. We have, we have, we have a lot of different animals right now. We've had a lot of farm animals. We've had cows, pigs, sheep, so, goats.
1: So they're coming to you in, in at desperate times. So you're mm-hmm. saying either hoarding situations or you've been called out and asked what are what are some of the. I guess, big cases that you remember that stick with you? And then also, what's the ultimate goal for these animals?
0: Well, ultimately, our goal is rehabilitation and then either adoption or release into the wild. So I've had a lot of really large cases um, over the years. A couple of them definitely stand out. Um, Wildlife, definitely, our goal is to get it back in the wild. So if it's a wild animal, our goal is to get it out with... um, Criminal cases, we sometimes have to hold them until the case is cleared, the court system. And, um, you know, with the farm animals, our goal is to find them homes where they'll be treated as pets. And then we um, have, like, cage birds, like a cockatoo or a parakeet, and then we them for adoption, which we have several right now, if anyone's l- listening and interested. <laughs> we have some parakeets. Um, and then uh, the, I think the bulk of what we do, 60%, is probably uh, wildlife rehabilitation. And um, and so we run a pretty robust adoption program. And then we have the separate um, wildlife rehabilitation program. So, um, but yeah, I have did a couple cases recently. Um, we had... Had a case where a lady was beating her goats over the head with a shovel and, um, the neighbor caught it on camera. And so we had taken in all, all of, we had, we had like 40 goats, um, which in hindsight, I wish we wouldn't have done (laughs) because the court case dragged off for a long time and we didn't really expect to have the goats that long. We had them for years, um, finally just cleared that case and, um, I went to North Dakota and picked up 400 um, birds up there at a um, huge wildlife rescue that it was a sanctuary, but they had tigers and lions, and the lions kept getting out and trying to eat people, and so the USDA closed it down, and we picked up a lot of birds there. Um, I've been all over the country. I flew out to California during the drought, um, when California was in the drought, and there would be dried up lakes with stranded birds in the middle or... You know, um, people don't realize that domestic birds can't really fly, so if they had, like, dumped domestic ducks and geese on a dried-up lake, the wild birds just fly. They go where where the next lake or the next water source is, and the domestics um, just get—they're literally just uh, sitting ducks yeah. um, for predators. So I've—I um, actually got flown out twice to California during the drought by two different um, cities— municipalities that had us um, assist them with getting birds placed for um, drought conditions. Um, And also I've done things like gone up to Ohio and the same situation with those birds, but the lake's frozen over and now the birds, wild birds have flown, you know, they go south, the domestics that are dumped there, um, which is a really big problem nationwide that, that people just don't talk about is that these ducks and geese get abandoned just um, in huge numbers, and then they're left to fend for themselves. And in the Carolinas, it's not as bad because we have pretty, you know, our weather's pretty mild. We don't don't have freezing. But when the ground's frozen, they no longer have a food source. They can't get to the grass. They can't get to the bugs. They no longer have their predator protection because the water has frozen over. So a lot of them just suffer and die uh, through the winter. So we've flown out um, or driven out to places like that and rescued all the animals and then look for homes. And we try to place them around the area they're at and so that we don't bring them all here. Yeah. We're trying to keep them um, hopefully in the state they're in because that reduces the red tape. But, um, you know, we we uh, when we did the California, I actually th- – this story we flew into – we flew into Sacramento – and we went north. And we rented a minivan. We didn't tell them, of course, that we were going to load it with animals. I have pictures of like the the minivan just loaded to the hilt with with geese. and uh, we had to drive north to get the geese. And then i I covered the whole thing in plastic and duct taped it and everything. We were really paranoid about doing it, but we had no way to do it. And uh, we drove across the entire state of California doing adoptions. and, um, I grew up in California, so I was really familiar with the area, but I had some people with me that had never been there. And so we we like pulled over next to the Golden Gate Bridge and we ran out and took a selfie. We're like, we're at the Golden Gate Bridge. And then we stopped somewhere and just dipped our toe in the water and um, we stopped in Monterey and had lunch. So we picked one place we really wanted to see. And then we stopped and at least had lunch and got to see the otters and stuff on the Mon- by the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And we, we jumped back in. So we had this, like, kind of fun trip, you know, going – because California is, like, huge, you know. It's like yeah. It was, like, 12 hours getting from one end to the other, and we did it with this van full of, you know, 40 geese. Well, and-
1: I was going to – so I'm, like, <laughs> just trying to wrap my head around, like, what does that look like? Well, first of all, how do you approach an animal – like that's in distress or that needs help, and then how do you um, convince it to hang out in a minivan with a bunch <laughs> of other
0: distressed animals? Dis- well, um, what we do is we actually um, we have a, a trap uh, that we set, and then we um, we make a funnel, and so we have on one end of of what used to be the body water, we have a we have a trap system, and then we make a funnel, and then um, we 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 scout the whole area around it. And then the bodies you get. We had we actually put out a plea and we had tons of people come from animal welfare organizations in the area that, that wanted to help. And so we had 50 people and we formed a ring from the funnel all the way up and we searched. And then what we do is we just kind of close down on the birds. And so it's almost like if you've ever watched the border collies when they do sheep, yeah. they run behind them. And so that's how we birds. So it's very similar to watching a dog herd. Um, so we go the opposite way that we want them to go and they run from us. And then eventually they, once they're in the funnel, they're, they're kind of trapped. But, um, when one bird goes, they all go. So you just got to get the one leader to go where you want. And then the rest of them just kind of follow. Then we close the funnel behind them and they're sort of in like a box, but it's, it's open like a cage. It's like those. You know, play guards, you put a puppy in, and then we put some netting over the top. And then once they're in there, we close it up. And then somebody um, goes in and just hands one bird at a time.
1: And so how do you know, or is it easy to tell a bird's domesticated versus a wild bird when they're in a situation like that? Like, are you able
0: to just based on their behavior and how they're they're acting? um, Well, it's the flight. So a wild bird can fly and a domestic bird can't. There are a few breeds that have a, have some flight ability, but they're pretty easily identified by, um, you know, the body size and shape or the colors. Like you don't see white birds in nature, you know, um, very often. I know we have snow geese and stuff, but like a white pigeon is domesticated. You see regular pigeons, you know, they're they're – they're feral, but like the white ones are the ones people release. Um, when you see a white duck at a pond, that duck has been dumped. So a lot of it is the color patterns, and, and it is the size. Like people will see a mallard, and it looks just like a ruin. Their colors uh, colors identical, but the mallard's body is sleek and muscular and aerodynamic, and it's designed for flight. The ruin, which is just a bigger um, domesticated mallard, has fat rolls that sometimes even drag on the ground and they their their body um, just sits differently. So for me it's super easy to tell because of course yeah. this is what I do, but um, you know it is hard for people who aren't working with birds sometimes to identify the different species. but when we're doing a roundup like that, if something flies, then we know that it it can it can leave the area. It's not trapped in the area that we're trying to protect them from. But if they can't fly away when we go to catch them, then then we know they need help.
1: Well, we're going to take a break right now. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about how people can help you and all the work that you're doing, because you've been doing it for a long time.
0: Yep. CLT First, that's spelled C-L-T-1-S-T. It's a refreshing new podcast of Charlotte people, by Charlotte people, for Charlotte people. No bots, no AI, just real human voices. We call it news for people who are so over local news. We work with natural allies, all locally owned, like the Charlotte Ledger, Queen City Nerve, Charlotte Post, and many others. We're all about local, 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 with minimal murder and mayhem. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Instagram.
1: Change your morning routine with
0: us. CLT first queencitypodcastnetwork.com.
1: So CWR Mm -hmm. is a hundred percent donation. So you don't even rely on the government at all to help you out. So um, again, I just keep on thinking about you started out with 300 and now you're at 7,000. Like that's a lot of animals on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So um, when someone donates What's like what, what how do you
0: prioritize your needs? Um, pretty much the entire year uh, we work for what we call baby season. and baby season um, used to be May, June, July, a little bit into August and September, but with climate change, um, animals breed, um, when the weather changes and now we don't really get the winters and stuff like we used to. So our baby season has expanded. Sometimes it starts in February. I'm going to knock on some wood. Um, but, uh, generally by May, uh, we're in full swing and that's when all of the wildlife is breeding. So we, we get like the random, you know, hit by car goose or, um, you know, birds stuck in glue traps and stuff uh, during the winter. But when the babies start coming in, um, we can intake almost a hundred animals a day. Wow! And um, we run a pretty large on uh, one of the area's only um, songbird rehabilitation programs. And so, one tiny baby bird, like a mockingbird or a robin or a cardinal, they have um, they have to eat. Um, every 10 minutes at the youngest point for 14 hours a day, and they grow into eating, you know, as they grow, goes to 30 minutes and then uh, 45 minutes in an hour. So, um, you know, we pretty much work all year to fund the um, baby season program that 80% of our work is generally done in this four or five month period. So a lot of the animals that we get in are going to come in we're going to get hit really hard with animals coming in and we try to pump them out as fast as we can. Um, so that's kind of our priority for funding. Um, I think because that we work with wildlife, there's a misconception that we um, get some kind of funding and there is no funding available f- on a state, federal, or even a local level that um, helps us with um so on top of all of what I do, you know, feeding a baby bird every 10 minutes for 14 hours a day, I also have to raise all the money that's needed to pay for the food. And just as an example, the Songbird program alone, um, our food bill is $10,000 a week. Wow. So it's a very expensive program, requires a lot of funds. Um, we ramp up volunteering we go from needing about 400 volunteers to needing about 800 volunteers just to do all the feedings and um even just getting people they don't need any training or skill I was gonna ask they that. can literally just be willing to pick up a baby bird off the ground and and drive it to us because a lot of people will find them but they they you know um a lot of people think this small naked you know animal is insignificant but um, what they might not know is that may be an endangered species because our songbird populations are in a huge decline. And I think they added 23 um, species to the endangered species list of passerines that are nearly extinct. And there really isn't anyone paying attention to uh, these bird species. And Birds are just uh, something that again falls through the cracks and and there are organizations dedicated to bird conservation, but they usually will pick one or two species or, or a small number of species, but there's hundreds of species yeah. and some of them migrate to different, co- completely different areas of the world and um, we don't realize how um, important they are for pollination and for spreading seeds and plants and there's just so many functions that um, birds perform that um, keep our ecosystem healthy and people aren't really paying attention to that and so to me every bird is really important and um, you know you you won't know what it is it'll just look like a pink um, naked Um, small alien maybe because they're kind of, they are kind of uh, strange looking, but, you know, within uh, three weeks, we'll have this beautiful feathered um, endangered bird that we'll get to put back in the wild. And so, you know, um, as far as the the funding, obviously the priority is there. Um, Before COVID, we had enough volunteers to run the program, but when COVID started, we um, lost probably 85% of our volunteers in almost overnight um, when that started happening. And people really haven't gotten back out and started volunteering again like they used to. And so we've had to add staff to accommodate the needs of the animals, which is, um, you know, we'd rather spend the funds on more animal care, but we have had to add staff. And, um, you know, our greatest need right now is just getting more volunteers back in, getting people out to um, they don't even have to commit to um, doing something every week or every month. They just join like our transport group and they can just be free on a Saturday and and we post a need and they can just sign in and say, OK, I'll do this one thing. They don't they can do that one thing. That's all they have to do.
1: That's awesome. So, well, So how do I find you?
0: Um, so we're on, um, we're on every social media channel that there is, um, under Carolina Waterfowl Rescue, but our website is cwrescue.org and most of the information is there on how to transport, how to volunteer, um, the baby bird season's ramping up and that's our greatest need right now is getting people in for that. We need, we need four to 600 volunteers just to feed all the birds that we get in.
1: Yeah. I'm just thinking about in my own (coughs) neighborhood, baby bird season, when you say that, like, um, birds build nests everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I know in our neighborhood, like people's um, wreaths on their front door in our mailboxes on the, you know, and so, yeah, every once in a while there's a baby bird that, you know, falls out or needs help or, so it's good to know that you're there to help, but then also Mm -hmm. too, if you feel comfortable enough helping that little bird, you might want to, you know, volunteer for, for a little bit more. So that's great.
0: And I think there, the other thing that's important to note is that, um, birds, um, nest around people for a reason, And people get really, uh, really scared. Oh, there's a bird on my door. It's going to get disturbed a lot. Well, the bird has been watching you for a while. It it knows that you go in and out the door, but it's counting on you to keep away predators. And um, that's why it nests there. But the other thing that people don't seem to um, understand is that birds learn to fly on the ground. So flight is instinctual. They don't have to learn how to fly. But they have to build the strength to fly. And so when they're first born, they don't have the strength to get, off, to get off the ground. And they can't learn to fly in the air. So they fall to the ground and then they start fluttering and then they fly to a bush. And then they they keep, every day they go up a little more. So it takes them about a week to learn how to fly. And so people find them and think they need help and they don't. Oh, that's and good so advice. we get a lot of kidnapped birds and, oh. um, you know, They'll say, well, I took this bird and the mom was dive bombing me. And I'm like, well, you're stealing her baby. <laughs> so, you know, it's really important to also call someone, like call our hotline and and get advice if you find a bird. And we ask people to text photos and they'll text us photos of the bird and we'll determine if it looks injured or it needs help or if it's just a fledgling. And um, and and safely observe the bird from a distance so that you can see if the mom is still taking care of the bird. and um, we forget we're predators. Wildlife doesn't have the ability to go, okay, well, this predator is not going to eat me, but this one will. They just look and we have forward-facing eyes and that means we eat mm-hmm. We eat prey. So um, when you're um, fussing and fussing around this baby, the mom's going to go, okay, there's this giant predator. Yeah. I've got to stay back until, you know, she can't risk all of her babies and herself. Um, so you kind of keep them away from their parents. By um by sort you think you're doing good by like hovering over them, but you're really not. it's better to step back and observe them from a distance.
1: yes think of them as like a baby bear.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you don't want to be you don't yeah. between, you get between a mom and a baby bear. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to get between a mom and a bird, uh, yeah. a baby bird. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate it. Remember the website is cwrescue.org and then I'm guessing I can find the hotline on there too if I if yeah, I have,
0: if anybody's interested, they can text anytime 704-286-6330 is our text line and it's also on the website. Um, we have volunteers who actually man the um, the number uh, the text line all the time, and we do it by text so they can send photos, and we can evaluate. I mean, everyone has a smartphone; you can take photos and videos of an animal, and you can s- text it to us, and we'll immediately reply. Usually, within within minutes, someone will reply to you if you have a snake and you don't know what it is. Um, we also do snake removal um, for for people when they get in their house and stuff. So. Any of anything related to wildlife will generally either help you or will tell you where to go.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. I really yep. appreciate it. If you know someone like Jennifer who's doing good in our community, let me know. Tell me about someone or a nonprofit organization that should be heard on Do Good Charlotte. Reach out to me, Pamela Escobar, on social media. I'm reporter Pam on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or go to the Queen City Podcast Network page and fill out the contact form for Do Good Charlotte. A big thanks to Share Charlotte. Make sure you use the hashtag #DoGoodCLT and head to ShareCharlotte.org to find nonprofits looking for your help. There's good all around us. Let's hear about it.
0: queencitypodcastnetwork.com.